Hello and welcome to the Sandro Forte podcast. Over the many years I've been running a business, I've met many, many successful people, entrepreneurs, sports stars, celebrities, and dare I say, even royalty. So what makes a person successful? Do we know what success is? And the all-important question, can we create success for ourselves? This podcast series invites a diverse group of people to share their insights, their wisdom, and the things they've learned along the way. Am I loved? If you find yourself asking this question, the most asked question of all time, then my next guest today is here to help you. John Bieber is a former overworked lawyer, and I love that part of his CV, and is an author of multiple books, including Am I Loved? The Most Asked Question of All Time. John is now committed to thinking and living life according to the incredible philosophy contained in his book. And if he doesn't mind me saying this, John uh, has given us something of an exclusive today because I know he's a very private individual, but this book, which we're going to talk about today and, and lots of other things besides, is absolutely extraordinary. It's one of the few books that I've read that's been produced by one of the Sandro Forte guests that I've literally not been able to put down. And I only received it a few days ago and I'm already halfway through it. It's absolutely Fantastic. So listen very, very carefully. Uh, my wonderful guest today, John Bieber. Thank you so much for joining us on the Sandro Forte podcast. Um, an incredible talent, a, 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 an all round great bloke and a reputation that precedes you. And I don't want to set you up for anything other than a very successful podcast today. But thank you. Thank you so much for joining us today because this book is amazing. Oh, that's so kind of you. Thank you very much. Thank you. And you're looking rather resplendent in your uh, uh, dark red um, jumper today, sweater. It really does suit you. It's a good colour on you, John, if I may say. <laughs> Do you know the joke is it was my eldest son's? <laughs> was it? Wow. Um, you're clearly looking after yourself to still be able to fit in your son's clothing. So, John, um, for those people who don't know John Bieber, I mean, if, when they read the book, they'll know all about you. We'll talk about that shortly. Uh, but for those who don't know who you are, just, I don't know, a little bit of background, where you come from, how this wonderful book came about. And I know I'm asking you a question, you know, that may encapsulate a, a rather colourful life, a very successful one, with a few pitfalls along the way. We'll talk about that as well. But if you could just give us a kind of a little summary of John Bieber and his life in a couple of minutes, that would be amazing. OK, well, I, I was born in London. I had an idyllic childhood. But I, there was one thing I had to do, and that was to become a solicitor. And that was because my father was a distinguished solicitor, and it was never expected that I'd do anything else. Not only that, he had a master's of law, which is an LLM, and I had to do the same. So I did it. And um, I didn't regret it. I loved being a solicitor. And uh, that's how life started. I then, when I had graduated with my LLM, I was lucky enough to go to Lord Goodman's firm. I don't know if people remember him now, but he was Harold Wilson's lawyer, the royal family's lawyer, all sorts of other people. And we had the most ex wonderful experience there. And I ended up as an equity partner. And uh, I can't tell you how enjoyable that was. And then subsequent to that, I felt instead of me being on his shoulders, he was on my back. Because um, if I gave advice to clients, they'd say, well, let's just go down and see what Arnold says. And Arnold would say the same thing as me. So I thought this is a waste of time after a while. And I started my own firm. And it was that that I think broke the camel's back years later. It was a, took off immediately and um, it became a bit of a liability as well as an enormous pleasure. Uh, and uh, that's my background. 
Wow. Well, you talk about enormous liability and great pleasure. I mean, there will be lots of people that will identify with what you've just said, because many people who listen to this podcast, John, are, you know, are successful business, you know, whatever success is. And we may come on to examine that during this podcast, but whatever it means to different people, you know, money is both a blessing and a curse. A successful business is a blessing and a curse. Um, a marriage has its, has its highs and its lows. You know, so we, I think we all identify with what you've just said. So what, what was the tipping point? What was the moment at which you said enough's enough? Because actually what you did was quite brave. Not many people make a conscious decision to walk away from something and live this, this purposeful life that you're now living uh, based on the values uh, that you share in your book. So what was that tipping point? What was that moment which you said, you know, enough's enough? Well, it wasn't the law. I enjoyed it very much indeed. It was just the time it took. And also, we lived in Sussex then and had three and a half babies. There was one on the way. And um, they were all under five. And uh, I, we just felt, really, this is crazy. I used to drive up to London from Sussex until the doctor told me I was mad. I'd either, either have a heart attack or, or a crash. And so I caught the train and it just took so long. I would get up after, say, quarter past five in the morning, not come back till 10 at night because I was determined not to stay up in London away from the family. And then I found I was only seeing the children in daylight at, in, at the weekend. And I felt that really wasn't the way to bring up the children. It wasn't the way I wanted to be. And I so enjoyed bedtime and prayer time and everything else. We had a wonderful time when we were all together. And I found that I loved telling them stories with four children as they got older. They needed four separate stories every single night. And uh, that's what I provided uh, after I'd given up. And I, I don't regret it at all. What It, it was just a big gamble. I was actually uh, I encouraged very greatly by my wife, Joey. Uh, she thought this was a way to live. The other way wasn't. And also by one of my partners who was an MP. And he said, for God's sake, live life. And I did. I've never regretted it. It's been wonderful ever since. Fantastic. I, I, and I heard you just say four separate stories to four separate kids. Let me give you a piece of advice, John. Your kids played you all those years ago. Four separate, four separate stories. Um, they, had you, they had you where they wanted you, that's for sure. Um, now, <laughs> I'm sure they do. Uh, we're, 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 all, we're all singing from the same song sheet on that one. Um, so, you know, a very successful career professionally. I, I love how you say, you know, you had to become a solicitor. Um, probably things are slightly different for today's generation, but it's very interesting because even I remember at the age of nine, 10, 11, um, how aspirationally I was expected to follow in my father's footsteps. So uh, again, that resonates with me as well. But uh, before we talk about the book and this amazing way you now live your life, a conscious decision that you took a number of years ago, um, let's just try and establish some perspective for the listeners, if, if we may. No, I guess despite the success of your business, John, you say it took off straight away and, you know, there you were commuting backwards and forwards. Um, but I, I, I imagine, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I imagine it wasn't all plain sailing. It wasn't a kind of an upward uh, trajectory. The, the line wasn't linear. Um, any, any catastrophes, any pitfalls, any setbacks in life or in business that, that you can share just to make sure that everyone listening doesn't think that you're just a saint, that uh, every, everything's been wonderful and, and, and there've been no derailments along the way. Oh, I see. Well, thinking of the practice, um, it went very well from day one. We, we started off, we couldn't have summer holidays and things like that. And my wife was very keen indeed that I should do it. 
and uh, eventually it, be it became an extremely successful practice and um, the only thing was staffing which was always such a bore uh, getting the right people at the right time the right lawyers and everything else and um, I just felt frankly that um, having done everything for 20 years or so I'd done it once I didn't want to do it again for the next 20 years or so and I, I actually thought I'd like to write and that was um, one of the decisions that I took that um, influenced my giving it up I merged the practice and then came home I came home for lunch and you may be interested to know I've had lunch ever since every single day Wow, that's that's an incredible discipline, actually. You know, we all talk about we've had many guests that talk about work life balance and family value and and all those things. So um, that that's that's a, a feather in your cap. That's for sure. So so the so the authorship, the, the day that John Bieber decides that he wants to write, as you've just said, was it was it something that came um, as a result of you know giving up the business? Was it retirement or, or was it just that I, I this is something I'm desperate to do and I want to do it? because we're going to talk about the book in a moment. Um, what, what led to the, the, the writing of your first book? Well, I think that was probably the reason I gave myself for giving it all up, because I said, I really want to write, and I had a great story to tell, which kept coming through my mind. And I did finish that story, and my children were very kind enough as they grew up to say that's the best book they've ever read, the best novel, but I've never published it. I didn't bother with that. And, and then I wrote subsequently a book on divorce from the emotional side, which was picked up by Penguin and helped a lot of people. And that's, um, again, what fueled my concern to write this particular book, because I took it so far and thought, no, this is wrong. And it took a lot of time and thought to get it right. And that's what I think I've produced now. So this this book, John, Am I Loved? Um, if we were to read the book, John, <laughs> what would we be reading within that book? Yes, well, look, first of all, let me say why I wrote the book, which is quite important. I did, a, funnily enough, an enormous amount of divorce in my new practice. It's one of those things where if you do one and someone's pleased, they tell their friends, even the other side say, can you help my girlfriend? And um, it grew rather exponentially. So I, I had that concern and that's when I wrote the book because my thesis was, if you can untie the knot, why should you cut it? because it seemed to me absolute folly that people were having a bad divorce after a bad marriage. Not only that, they couldn't actually make a decision because they were emotionally blocked. And it was very sad indeed. I used to send new clients away for six months saying, think about it and then come back. I always knew they would come back and they would get divorced, but they had to be happy in their decision. So that's what influenced me to write that book. And um, it analysed the emotional side of divorce because people had neglected it. I think it was the first book in the UK which had it. And as I say, Penguin published it and it did very well. And then coming into my new book, to this book, um, Am I Loved? Uh, I, I realised that I hadn't solved the problem of emotions any more than anybody else had. I used to say, in the, I said it in the book, well, get rid of them. And I had a little, a little table at the back where people would tick off when I got rid of this one and that one and the other, because it seemed to me so simple, but it wasn't. And it took me, I must tell you, over 15 years to work this out, and it's all in the book. And that's the essence of my book, which is describing the human condition, because emotions take you to love, which takes you to all sorts of senses we aren't appreciative that, that we have. And um, the book is there to describe the human condition. Its premise is really founded on a few questions. How can we as function as sophisticated emotional beings 
if we can neither understand nor control our emotions? And why are the very things that make us human the things that make us feel ill at ease in our humanity? Then there are a couple more. Why should we be the only dysfunctional species in the world? And what does it feel like to be alive? And it was actually that last question which got me really thinking because nobody can answer the question. And the answer, of course, is in the book. But nobody can answer it. And uh, I challenge anybody to come out with the right answer. Wow, that yeah, I, I, I attest to everything you've just said because I'm I'm in the process of reading the book, so I'm already being challenged on that on that very subject. Um, to what extent? I mean, clearly you did a lot of research. To what extent do you know influences like you know Maslow and the hierarchy of needs and all these other theories that we that we see uh, either in books or on the internet? Um, to what extent are you influenced by others, or is this all your own research, John? Well, I've obviously read a lot of books, and um, I, I always thought everybody, even the, the very best books, they just just miss the point. They take it to a certain level and say, I don't know. And uh, I worked out what I thought was the right answer, and I believe it is still today. And uh, I haven't been influenced by by too many th different theories if, I, if they don't fit in with what I'm saying, because mine is coherent, and it actually embraces the entire human condition. And um, I, uh, it took a lot of thought and a lot of work, but I think it was worth it. I hope so. And my desire is that I should be right and that should be taken on in the future. So we'll see if it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure from, from what I've seen and, and read so far, I'm sure it will be. So, John, let's, let's ask you a fairly profound question, if we may. How, how do you define love? Because obviously that's a theme in the book. Um, it's about, you know, uh, human acceptance. It's about... Um, meeting the needs of, as you say, a dysfunctional society. And I think you're absolutely right about that. Um, does, does love, by definition, lead to happiness? How, how do you define it? How do you, how do you help people to understand that, that fundamental need? Well, would you allow me just to read what I've written about it? Because I think it's much better than me trying to explain it. I would love that. And you, you, you'd oh, be good. the first person on this podcast to actually read some of their own book, which is amazing. So you go for it, John, you go for okay. it. Okay, so, and what is love? Love is like an elephant. You know it when you see it, even or especially when it is gone. But can love be defined? I think it can. In fact, it comes down to something very simple, namely the gauging and supply of another's needs. That's all it is. It is a binding that contains us all, the glue that holds us together, the care, the security we crave for, the supply of our personal needs. In this way, when we enter the world, love provides us with essential security and succor. In life, it brings commitment and support to family and friends, unity, trust and companionship to partners and spouses. In death, love leaves us in grief, bereft for what we had but have no longer. We give love and we receive it. But really, we trade it. We wish to love, but above all, we wish to be loved. And in many instances, that single desire will be greater than our personal desire to give love. Being loved, feeling loved, is the real and actual key to happiness. The answer to the age-old question, what makes people happy? As Steven Pinker writes in his superb How the Mind Works, the study of happiness often sounds like a sermon for traditional values. The numbers show 
that it is not the rich, privileged, robust, or good-looking who are happy. It is those who have spouses, friends, religion, and challenging work. In short, all individuals whose relationships endow them with the potential to love and be loved. Though with its infinite subtleties, passions, romance, tenderness, care, and devotion, love ennobles humankind, raising humanity high above all other creatures, its real purpose, as is always the case with nature, is rather less rhapsodic than it might appear. When all the oaths are sworn, kisses kissed and hugs hugged, what is achieved once love is consummated is a package of genes to create a new generation. Love may be the food that nourishes our emotions, the jewel in the human crown, but at the end of the day, the safe passage of life to the next generation is what nature requires and what love delivers. That's beautiful, John. I, and I have to say, not only are you a good author, you're a good storyteller too. When I, when I grow up, I'd like to have your voice, if that's all right. <laughs> those, um, those two words you used, interestingly, the words trade it, I've never thought of it in that way before. And I'm sure I speak on behalf of lots of listeners who would feel the same way. And I, interesting, we had a guest not long ago um, uh, who talks about trading in the, in the business world, trading wages for labour. And actually, if you think about it, it is most fundamental level. You know, we all crave uh, to both give and receive love, that principle of reciprocation, which, of course, uh, runs through, you know, one of the success principles of life. Right. So, um, yes, beautifully read, I have to say. And um, a, a very good excerpt from the book. I, I have to I think that sums it up beautifully. Um, just uh, to help the listeners to kind of understand you know, all of the emotions, because love is, you know, is, is a very deep, um, open-ended subject matter. It is one that for many of us, we will never quite understand or control. Maybe for some of us, unfortunately, we will never experience it in the same way that perhaps you have, for example. Um, how do people in society, particularly now with all the pressures that life brings, how do people control their emotions, John? Is there a, is there a, a series of rules? Is there some tips you can share? What, what, what's the, the best way to help people with some of those challenges? I mean, you know exactly what I'm talking about, that, that you know, people do struggle on an emotional level. How do they become more cognizant of their emotions and how do they control them um, so that they live a more fulfilling life? Well, can I say they must read my book, then they get the full answer. But the that's the short answer. But the complete answer is that emotions are things that we cannot control. The best we can manage them, which is what I try to explain in the book. And I do say they speak with our tongue in a language we don't understand. And I modestly say that I think I translated the language in the book. But emotions are not what we think they are. We don't create them, they come to us fully formed, hitting us right between the eyes. And the reason for that is something that I worked out, which I believe is correct. And that is that emotions are there not to supply or provide our needs, personal needs as we would construe them, but they're there to protect the genes that created the life that we bear. And so every time we have an emotion, if you think about it, you step off the, the, the uh, you're pushed off the pavement or something, and you take fright, it's there because your life is potentially in, in danger. 
And that was, this all started with our caveman, whom I introduced in the book, then the Cro-Magnon caveman, 40 odd thousand years ago. And they're the same emotions that he had. And that is the point, that we cannot actually create a new emotion. It's absolutely absurd. That is, all we have is our huge repertoire of emotions, but we can't control them. And if we can't control them, we can't do anything other than try to manage them by understanding them. When we understand that they're very much there to protect our genes, the next step is to understand that they're there, how we gauge them. And this is where I've created something called the supreme sense, where the emotions, every time we have an emotional reaction of any sort, are gauged against our need to be loved, which is our greatest need of all. And that we're either feeling loved or unloved. And when we have so many unhappy people, it's because they feel unloved. And the reason why they feel unloved is because they don't say, am I loved? Which is what we were responding. That's how we gauge the emotions. But later on, they say, am I surviving? And surviving is just going to take them into a cul-de-sac. It's just selfish. It doesn't actually help anyone but themselves. And in the end of the day, it destroys the person who is just surviving and not loving. I'm sorry, it's a long answer, but that's the no, essence of it. That, absolutely. A, a very comprehensive one. And that's exactly the answer I was looking for. How, how then is love manifested, John? Because, you know, there will be people listening say, well, I, I'm not sure I, I understand what's being said here because, you know, I'm, I, I live alone. I don't have an extended family. I have no way of understanding whether I'm, I, I'm sure we all ask that question, but in what ways can we all uh, experience love? Because we all have different backgrounds and circumstances. Some of us have extended families and it's kind of much easier to, tangibly understand and have that question answered for ourselves but for others it's more difficult how how do we how do we seek the answer to that question apart from buying your book <laughs> yes that, that's the obvious answer no i think the it's not an easy question because the everybody needs to be loved that is the essence of humanity and the greatest concern of humanity is are we loved and most people probably can't answer that in the positive and affirmative but I can't say that, you know, go online, go into a pub or whatever and meet somebody. But that's the only way is to meet other people. Because funny enough, the, the sight or sound of another human being is the most arousing sensation one human being can experience. And then when you are loved, it's the ultimate validation that somebody loves you and you're fulfilled and that should be enough. But if people aren't finding love, maybe they're not giving enough. I don't know. I wouldn't want to judge them. Can, can I make an observation then at this stage, just to help people with this, you know, this conundrum, if that's the right word. I, I, wanna sh I should be asking the questions, not giving, giving the answers, but I experienced something quite profound not long ago, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before, where I um, was walking down a street in London many months ago, and I saw a young man in a doorway with the cardboard sign, homeless and hungry. You know, we've seen those a million times before. Uh, and I... I, I was quite sceptical about giving the money, as, as we do without thinking. But I saw a number of people just tossing money into the paper cup. So I went and bought him a sandwich from a well-known sandwich shop, took it back to him. But what I did, unconsciously, was I knelt down next to him and we, we talked for a couple of minutes. I asked his name, where he'd come from, how long he'd been on the street. And as I left that conversation, he stopped me and said, thank you. And I thought instinctively he was saying thank you for the food that I'd given him. And, and he stopped me and said, no, I want to thank you for noticing me, for taking the time out 
to speak with me today. And what he went on to explain was that he'd been on the street for many years and he had never experienced uh, uh, an act of human kindness in all the time he was on the street. So the definition of love isn't love in the physical sense. And I want to be very clear about this. It's about so much more than that, isn't it, John? And I don't want to put words into your mouth, but to help people understand what you're talking about, this is much more than the physical sensation. Oh, very much more. No, no, it, love is giving. You know, they say to, be a, to have a friend be a friend, to have love give love. And that's what it is, it's giving. And that's why I say it's the gauging and supply of another's needs, because if that's what happens, then each party is absolutely satisfied and fulfilled. It's, I think, that simple. And very impressive, actually, that uh, you did that. And the response you got must be very gratifying. It was, it was lovely. Uh, but interestingly, when I made mention of it on, on Facebook, for no other reason than to try and encourage other people to be philanthropic. And for me, philanthropy isn't about giving money. It's about doing things exactly as you describe in your book, to give and receive love, to use, uh, use the title of your book. Um, and I, there were a couple of people, I won't mention names, they know who they are, that, that were highly critical of the fact that I was using this platform to somehow, you know, gain others' appreciation of my effort. And, and I find that bizarre. I find it really quite sad, actually. But, um, and, and there will always be people out there that will, that will not seek to better another person's life, to, to give and receive, as you describe. Um, so I, I think one question I would then have for you, John, would be, has this whole experience, this you know, the research you've done, the, the, the obvious thought you've put into this book and the extraordinary amount of time that's gone into writing it, has it made you a better person? Do you have a greater appreciation for life and for other people? And do you actively encourage people, apart from to read your books, I'm sure they will, um, you know, the, the, the understanding that people gain from reading your book, does it make people a better people? Is, was that your original intention for the book or was this just something you wrote for yourself? No, no, it was very much to make, give fulfilment to people and to make them feel happy and, uh, and, and self-contained. And I think that's very much the point. It wasn't written just for my own vanity, uh, but it has changed my life. And I think it's changed my wife's life and the children's life and everything else. And it's, um, it, it's, it's a philosophy and uh, it, it, you either live with it or you don't. But I don't think people ever appreciate it that our greatest need is the need to be loved. So all you have to do is satisfy that, fulfill it, and you're off and running, I think. That's, that, that's how I would put it. Well, I'm going to let you into a little secret now, John. You don't know this, but I've ordered 20 copies uh, of your book to give as gifts to my family, because I have quite, quite a large family, because some of what I've read in the book is so profound, and we are a very tight-knit family who do appreciate all the things that you say in your book. So uh, you've, already, you've already sold 20 books as a result of this podcast. How well, oh, very kind. Thank you so much. Now, happy Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm sure you will sell many more as a result of people all around the world listening to this podcast. Um, have you had, you know, I mentioned earlier on, John, um, the inevitable trials and tribulations and the, and the roadblocks and the obstacles of life. Any, any moments where things didn't go according to plan? Any moments of adversity in your life that you had to overcome or deal with? Um, or has it all been plain sailing for, for John Bieber? No, it hasn't. It hasn't. I was thinking about this, and there is one thing I've never really ever said publicly, and I, I don't want to tell you the story. Uh, but um, Joey and I, my wife, she was 18 when I met her, 
and we were going to get married when she was eight, 19 and two in a week. And um, I went for lunch the eight days before the wedding to her house. And um, we had a very nice lunch and there was a child there and my future mother-in-law played the piano for him and he was taken away. And she sat down and she said, you're not going to marry my daughter. And that was the biggest adversity and shock that I've ever had in my life. And uh, Joey was astonished as well. And uh, I decided, well, I'm going to go off in my car because I booked the time off the office. So I went down to Saint-Tropez and she wanted to come with me. And her father said over his dead body. And uh, it, it was absolutely appalling. Uh, the funny thing is that when I was leaving Saint-Tropez, there was a woman there waiting for a taxi. And I said I'd give her a lift to Cannes. And I dropped her off in Paris a few days later. But we never actually exchanged names. She was in terrible trouble over her, her marriage. and. Uh, we, I dropped her off in Paris. It was totally respectable. And she kissed me on the cheek. I then went to get a, a, host, a, a hotel room and nobody would give me a room until I ended up in the Pigalle district, which is pretty grotty. And someone said, oh, I'll give you a room. And I said, well, do you want my passport? She said, no, I don't need your passport. And when I got up into the bathroom, I saw that I had the big lipstick kiss mark on my cheek. <laughs> <laughs> but then it, it went on. You see, we stayed together. Joey was sent off to Canada to stay with her brother. And when she came back, she stayed with me. And I mean, we stayed together. And uh, 10 months later, we had the same problems between the families. So we, we, we said, well, that's it. It's not going to work. And then she sent me for my birthday that September. Well, no, in fact, I then that, that summer went to, to Russia and um, had a wonderful tour of the Soviet Union. And as I came out of the Lenin mausoleum, I suddenly had the most wonderful idea for a book. Uh, it was to somebody who would, uh, terrorists would take over the mausoleum and threaten to blow up the body, which I think is only a wax effigy anyway, but that was meant to be his body. So I, uh, I, then my birthday came along and we saw each other and I told her about the book and she said, well, please send it to me and let's wait until you finished it. So I wrote it to get her out of my system. And um, when I finished it, I did not send it to her. And then the most extraordinary thing happened. Um, a solicitor who worked for me in my office came into the room, said, have you got a moment? Closed the door, sat down and said, I saw Joey at the theatre last night. And she said she still feels the same. Where's the book? So I sent her the book and we've been together ever since. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. What a lovely, what a, lo what a fantastic love story in a, in a very good way of underpinning everything you write about in the book as well, John. That's, that's lovely. And, and a story of not just love, but tenacity as well. Yeah, well, that was adversity. I thought that really was not very nice for a young man to have to go through. <laughs> well, I, well, I won't ask you publicly um, why her parents disapproved. We'll leave that one for another day. <laughs> yes, quite. <laughs> um, John, how do people, and this is the obvious question now, um, and you know what, we, we've never used the podcast as a, as a platform for anyone to, inverted commas, sell their product or, or their service. And naturally, people will migrate towards them if, if they say something that resonates with the audience. But I think we'll make an exception on this occasion because it really is such a fantastic book and it answers so many of life's questions. Um, so how do people get hold of your book, John? Is it one of those that they can freely access on Amazon or do they buy direct from you or your publisher? Do you have a website? Yes, I have a website, but it's from Amazon. It's on Kindle and it's on Audible as well. So it's easily available. Do you, easily read, the, available. Do you read the story on Audible? 
I do actually, yes. Oh, wow. Well, that's a, that's a treat. I'm going to have to get myself one of those as well. <laughs> that's very kind. Have, have John Bieber reading to me at bedtime. That would be, a, that yes. would be quite, quite a treat. That'll send, that'll send you to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I have to say, I, I'm going to repeat one more time. It's a fantastic book, well worth the read. Uh, beautifully, beautifully written, I, I've got to say. Um, published earlier this year, if I'm not mistaken, John. So not, um, just answers a lot of questions around love, the human condition, emotion. Um, re really fantastic. Um, finally, John, the, the one question that we ask to all of our guests, which you may know, because I know you've been kind enough to listen to a few of the episodes, um, and it is this. If um, a younger version of John Bieber were talking to the one I'm talking to now and said, you know, based on everything you know of life, your experiences, good and bad, what would the one single piece of advice you would give to people be, John? That, that the advice that would transcend all other pieces of advice that you've ever received in life? If it was just one, what would it be? Well, in three very, very short bites, be true to yourself, love generously, never lose hope. Oh, I love that. Well, you never lost hope with Joey, did you? Oh, so no, you've, uh, you've lived by your own set of rules. Um, John Bieber, it's been terrific. I, I'm real pleasure, deed honour today to, to speak to you. Um, not least because, as I said at the start, you know, you are a very private individual, uh, but you, you, you are a manifestation of what you write about in your book. That's clearly very obvious. It's, a, it's joyful to hear that you've been with Joey for so long a, a real kind of love story and, and one of tenacity uh, back in those early days as well but you know when I use the word honor not one I throw around uh, too often it really has been an honor to speak to you today because you are uh, a, a real a real human being that I think we should all aspire to uh, to be like well thank you you really it's been an enormous pleasure thank you so much Sandro and to all of you listening on the Sandro Forte podcast uh, if you didn't get something from our podcast today with the wonderful John Bieber, then uh, you might want to go and find a different podcast. It was absolutely terrific, and you must avail yourself of a copy of his book. Um, remember, every week we've got a new guest joining us to share their own insights into achieving success, overcoming life challenges, a philosophy of life. It's a real mixed bag, as you know, on the Sandro Forte podcast. So please make sure you subscribe. Tell your friends about it. Follow us on social media. You know the drill by now. If you have a question for John or for ourselves, it's hello at sandrospodcast.com. Do leave those reviews on iTunes. That's really, really important. And don't forget to connect with me on social media. It's at Sandro40 on Twitter and the real Sandro40 on Instagram. Thank you once again to the wonderful John Bieber. To all of you, have a great week. Until this time next week, it's goodbye for now.